This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Writer's Room, where funny writers who sit in funny rooms and write funny words for other people finally get to talk. Here's your host, me, Jeff Cesario. Well, uh, today this is going to be educational and uh, hilarious and fun, uh, at least educational for me, uh, the writer's room, uh, because our guest is Camille Corbett, who is, uh, she's like doing it like right now. However, they're doing it right now, which we're going to find out. She is doing it. (laughs) Camille, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Thank you for you having look me. Fabulous. I feel like I should have used some toner, perhaps shaved. Uh, some, some rose water would have done you good. I think, <laughs> yeah, maybe some, better lighting. I, I feel yeah. I feel underdressed on my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, let's dive right in. You've written for Netflix. Uh, you've been in rooms at Netflix. This is a whole new beast. I remember touching base with you once and you said, oh yeah, like I worked on a show for like four episodes and then they put me on another show and describe what this is when you go in as a young writer to Netflix and then tell me how you got into Netflix. Um, so basically it's kind of interesting. Um, the way I got staffed on Netflix, I was like an office PA on the Upshaws and, um, one of my friends, she is an exec at Netflix and she's like been a fan of my writing since she was at CAA and I used to be hip pocketed there. So she sort of remembered my samples and she was just like, can I see like a couple of them? And I sent them to her and, um, three days into, or like four days into that job, um, I got staffed on Dad Stop. You're embarrassing me. Dad Stop embarrassing me. Well, the title's so long. I always forget it. But yeah, I worked on that show. And yeah, that was like a great experience. And I became a staff writer. So that was my first like official real writing job. That's the uh that was the Jamie Foxx EP that. Yeah. And like as far as like, you know, studios and stuff, yeah, it was like Jamie Foxx, David Allen Greer. It was like a cool cast. Um But yeah, the thing about like studios or whatever, it doesn't really matter about the studio, like as far as the hiring process. I don't think your relationship with the studio often matters or has that much pull. Like an exec can like recommend you, but unless like someone doesn't know like anyone like you and they're looking for something very specific, the chances of getting hired through an exec are very slim. It honestly is up to the showrunner generally. And that doesn't, that's why I'm like the studios don't really matter because they can love you but if the showrunner doesn't know you or they don't need someone exactly like you, 
then you're sort of shit out of luck. <laughs> wow. So you, how do you make contacts with showrunners? How to make contact with showrunners? Well, man, honestly, through Twitter is honestly the best way. But before um, I got staffed, I didn't really have a Twitter presence because as assistants, they don't want you to have social media. They want you to sort of be like a clean slate. Um, so when I see ever, whenever I see assistants like having like crazy social media, I'm like, whoa, I wish I could have done that. But I feel like no one would have hired me at the same time. Like I definitely wouldn't have climbed as fast if I was like saying crazy shit on Twitter while a writer's assistant or a writer's <laughs> PA. <laughs> so they want just a clean they want <laughs> they want someone they can mold <laughs> well entertainment and is like worry about i'm guessing on some yeah level. it's still like a very um like corporate vibe so they want like the people that are support staff not to reflect artists they sort of want them to reflect you know that corporate vibe i feel so now and some people may ahead. say print but that is like if you want the best like catch all to be able to get a job, that's how you should move. I think. So Twitter was like a sales tool in a sense, in addition to being a fun expression of, of your sense of humor, it's also a great sales tool. As an artist, not as an assistant, but yeah, as an artist, that is a great sales tool, but I did not broach that until I got staffed. I was like, okay, people can get to know me now as a writer. Because that's how I know you is from Twitter. Yeah. Stuff made me laugh. And I went, OK, I try to just follow people who make me laugh because yeah. that's the purest thing to me is, 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 it, is it funny? Does it make you laugh? Because it's such a uh, involuntary biological thing that if you're laughing, then you got to go, oh, they did something. <laughs> they did something <laughs> that involved some level of skill that invoked a laugh out of me. That's pretty impressive. So, so how Thank do you, you dovetail all of these? Cause you've got Twitter and IG and TikTok and Pinterest. And do you look at all of those with a business eye or do you look at them creatively or do you somehow do both? Um, both. Growing up, I've always wanted to have my own magazine. And I feel like that is what social media is to me. Like it's a magazine. So I want to put out like quality content. And I do think about it in that way. Um, now that there is like a writer's strike, I definitely feel like now I'm thinking of like more ways to like elevate my content on top of that, because I'm like, if I'm not going to be making money through these studios, I have to make money somehow. And like, just like, Upping your quality of content will often do that because the algorithm favors like uh, like nicer things. So it's like if you like really think hard on a joke and it goes viral on Twitter, that's like more quality than just like randomly putting a bunch of like your thoughts that give you like 10 likes. Or if you like just throw some random pictures on Instagram versus like you know, trying to get a great camera and like thinking of like an inventive shot, of course, you're going to get less likes um, because it's like not as quality content. Um, so just like focusing on like things like that through social media. I should also give context. I was head of digital media at my university when I was there. I went to the University of Alabama. And so I always think of like social media, obviously, it's fun, but also like from a business mindset. So you came at it with you had a little pedigree on, on the, the social media shit 
uh, and and so that's got to be a cool background. I have zero uh, tech head ability. Uh, so, but you're able to come from it and go, oh, I can do this, this, and this, and that's going to immediately boost yeah. likes, views, et cetera. If you just make well, quality content. And also, if you make quality content, it can transfer across different platforms. So it's like if you have like a really great tweet, it can become a really great thread. You know, um, it, you can find a way to make that into a TikTok. Like jokes can translate. There's no reason to just like give it up. It's sort of like in stand up where you like do the same joke over and over again. You can do the same joke on every single platform and see how it does on every platform. I, I do that sometimes just to experiment. Wow. You might have a, I think there's a, uh, like a consulting business for, uh, for people like me who don't okay. have for that. You know, there really is. <clears throat> I think you could get it going. You could probably get like, like 10 people for whom this language is inherent social media. And, and, uh, they could probably do 40 minutes over coffee with me or someone like me and Pam, it's, it's moving all of a sudden there's things that I can do, like you're saying, and that I am, I am taught how to do it. (laughs) Or at least I have a cheat sheet. (laughs) That's what I need. Like a bullet points of here's what you do. Then here's how you take it. Instagram. Here's how you do that. Man. I think there's, um, I think there's a market there that, uh, that I'm now going to expect you to spearhead, but uh, (laughs) really there's something there, but it comes so intrinsically. For you, how'd you get into that at Alabama? Because I know you're a Fulbright scholar, which is a whole other thing, which is okay. fantastic. <laughs> which we'll talk um, about. Basically, I had a radio show at the University of Alabama called Femme Fatale, and I only like played female artists, and I had a male artist of the week, and the like. The student publications, like the dude that ran it, loved it. And um, he had an opening for a job for head of digital media. And I was just like, I've always been fascinated by social media. I just thought it was the wave. And at the time, I was like a hairy YouTuber. Um, So I had like a YouTube channel for like doing like different curly hairstyles. And um, I was just like, let me do it. And they uh, uh, luckily like allowed me to do it. And it was great. Like I had like a bunch of like interns under me too had my own office had access to like all these great cameras and like I made like commercials I took photos if anyone like famous came to the university I'd always like you know take video photos of them all of that jazz it was like a really great experience and I was like always on the go I also was like in the news section of newspaper as well as a writer and I was like kind of like bored you know because like immediately I was able to get like really cool cases like about like people on death row or like um you know like senators and stuff but like alabama is so corrupt that it wasn't fun it wasn't fun and so (laughs) (laughs) the first time i had fun was like doing like the digital media but covering the scandal at my university where this girl she had like a 4.5 gpa and didn't get into any sorority because she was black and her dad was like a senator so it was like this huge news story and like all these other like publications were there like time and new york times and like just like trying to get the tea and it was fun to like try and compete with them for like you know coverage of these things and that was like the first time i was like oh my god i love social media 
<laughs> so <laughs> I would think it might be difficult for most people to go from uh, uh, a um, YouTube channel featuring curly haired uh, concepts. <laughs> I'm dying. To, hang on. I got a scoop <laughs> on a scandal, but you're able to make that transition. That is not, I don't, I don't think that's a normal, um, you know, lateral move or move up, but there's something in you that goes, Oh, I got it. I, 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 bam. I see something over there. And you're doing it kind of even now. You got music videos, you got music tunes that are hilarious. <laughs> and you've got uh, like you you did uh what is it, Chelsea and uh Crystal and Chelsea. Crystal and Chelsea. Now where's that? You're so, so again, to me, what fascinates me is your vision is a kind of cinemascope. Whereas most people are like, ah, I'm going to do this little, I'm going to hold my iPhone the wrong way. And just, that's my narrow little thing. You see, Ooh, wait a second. I could do funny, uh, sexy songs. Wait a second. I could do a, a, what amounts to a sitcom, uh, you know? Yeah. How do you do that? How do you see that wide? I love for you. Yeah. Um, I always do too much. I'm like definitely like super ambitious and I always like want to dabble. Um, I'm someone that like is obsessed with storytelling. And if I can mix storytelling with anything that I have an interest in or like something like bothers me or something I just want to know more about or like I've always wanted to do, I will mix in comedy and storytelling with that. So for me, Chris Lynch Chelsea, like I wrote that because my mom was obsessed with psychics growing up. And I thought it was such a fucking scam. And yeah. I was just like, stupid. And I also think, um, like, I wouldn't trust these people. Like, they always have a little too much style, pizzazz to be someone, I think, talking to the underworld. Like, or like whatever world they're talking to. I don't even know. <laughs> and so I just wanted to create, you know, like my version of a psychic scammer. Like, what would it be like for me to be like a psychic scammer? And then for like like the comedic music I do. Um, I've always been like a fan of like Andy Samberg, Al, Weird Al. Right, and right. like I just, I've always wanted to do it. It's just like a bucket list thing. I'm actually working on a new album, like EP now for it. But um, yeah, I, it's just something I've always wanted to do. And so I just did it. Like I'm, I'm lucky to be friends with a lot of people that are musicians. And they didn't think it was crazy when I was like, I want to make comedic music. And they started to think I was a little crazy when they read the lyrics, but they made beats for it anyways. And it worked out. But yeah, it definitely was like a leap of faith. And I think I'm constantly making leaps of faith. And like sometimes like they don't work out. And I feel like people often don't see that where I'm like, oh, I tried this really weird like artistic style that I thought was going to like slap and it doesn't really work in that way but yeah <laughs> I just like to try stuff and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't so Crystal and Chelsea is essentially uh, you play a character whose mom is a psychic and then yeah. you don't really you kind of get into it because you want to make some dough and then you suck one of your <laughs> clients into it somehow and then the whole thing now how many have you done multiple episodes of that 
No, just the pilot. Just the, so it's basically it's a proof of concept and it's being distributed by Comcast. But I also just put it on YouTube because I know that some people don't have like access to like the back end of Comcast because they just like have like some indie projects there. Yeah. Right. In their catalog. So this is another way. It's an it's this is a living resume. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's also, yeah. All these got- ways to get out there that are amazing. So now that perhaps a showrunner sees and goes, you know, obviously once the strikes over and we're back up and running, maybe somebody goes, I, I need to meet with that woman who did Crystal and Chelsea. Yeah, that'd be tight. <laughs> but I don't know about that. Um, that would be cool. Um, I just feel like people generally, like showrunners at least, want um, like a writing sample. But I could see like them being drawn to it, like, you know, for acting or, um, you know, like maybe they see it and then they're like, oh, can we read something too on top of watching this? Right. right. But yeah, possibly. That'd be lit. I actually got funding for the island through Crystal and Chelsea, though. Oh, that's pretty cool. Now, describe this. This is essentially a, a short independent film. Yeah, it's a short. It's a proof of concept for a feature I wrote. And I knew I was the only person that could direct it. So I sort of sat on it. I didn't send it out after I wrote it. I wrote it at like the end of 2020. And I sat on it um, for a minute because I was like, I need a strong proof of concept that can show that I can be the only person to direct this. And so I waited for funding. I knew I didn't want to do another Kickstarter because Kickstarters are really intense. And when I did the Kickstarter for Crystal and Chelsea, I didn't really have like a social media presence. But if you do, just like full disclosure, because I tried to help my friend with the Kickstarter that completely failed because they were not willing to sacrifice their social media. If you do a Kickstarter, you have to wake up at every day, like before like people wake up, post that you're needing money, what your goal is, what you have left. And, you know, you do that every day on every platform you have. Um, and for me, like I was not willing to do that now that I had like thousands and thousands of followers. I was like, this is going to be horrible. I'm going to lose thousands of people. And so instead, I decided to go the independent financier route. And um, I started like hitting up people in my network that like worked in real estate because I knew that they knew, um, you know, um, investors. And Luckily, like I pitched to one person, but like what actually happened was um, I basically got frustrated about the process because I had like one bad pitch meeting. And so I basically just tweeted out. I was like, does anyone have any residual white guilt left from 2020 and want to fund my project? And luckily, um, Outback Presents, Vaughn Millette, like hit me up and and he um, gave me funding for the island. And I feel very lucky for that. <laughs> yeah, this is all I'm just digesting so much from when you're talking. It's just fascinating to me. Um, uh, here's what stuck out for me. The um, the time that you really have to put into a social media presence, especially depending on what your goal is. So if your goal is Kickstarter, you don't necessarily want to hit up 
say your IG or Twitter followers, if you've got a lot of them with the same message every morning. No, you should. I mean, you, you should. should. If you if you really need well, that goal, what were you talking yeah. about when you were afraid that you might lose? No, no, I was afraid. That's why I didn't do it. But like, if you want to go to the Kickstarter route, fuck all of your fault. I mean, don't fuck them. But like, you know what I mean? Like, um, just know that you're going to lose thousands of followers if you have a large amount of followers and be okay with that. Um, because I remember when I did my first Kickstarter, I had like hundreds of followers and I probably lost hundreds of followers from hitting people up, asking them for stuff. Like, and like I hit up every single follower individually and I got, I reached wow. my goal. Yeah. I hit up every single person that I like was friends with on Facebook, hit up everyone on Instagram that didn't seem like a bot. And, and yeah, and on Twitter, I didn't, I had like a negligible amount of followers, so it didn't even really matter. So what we're really talking about here is the new business model and, and actually breaking it down um, for people who haven't or are looking to kind of get a better handle on it. And you of everybody I know seem to have a really good handle on it. And here's what I like. Also, is that it doesn't seem to be uh, like a sort of um, I'm going to scattershot this and kind of see what hits, even though that's an element of it. But you genuinely enjoy making music and you genuinely enjoy doing a funny show and doing a crazy horror spinoff short film and doing the, the podcast, the smoke show show which makes me laugh just because there's two shows in it. I, I, I'm not even into smoke and dope and I'll watch it just because <laughs> this week on the smoke show show, that kind of <laughs> makes me laugh hard. Um, so you. there's a, you like those things that you're doing. And I think so many people who get into it now are kind of going, Oh, I'll try this. And if it gets traction, I'll do it. And, and yet you are like, Ooh, no, I'm, I have this funny thing or interesting thing. Let me find the social platform that gets it the most traction. That, to me, that's a big difference. I think with anything you do artistic, you have to have a singularity of vision. You have to like not let other people affect you and know what you want to do. And once you mold that, you can like let other people in and let them give you advice and stuff like that. But I think at first, like you have to know, like if you think of an idea, what platform is this going to be? Like, is it going to be a script? Is it going to be a YouTube video? Like, is it going to be like, what is it going to be? Is it just going to be like a random TikTok? You have to be realistic with yourself and sort of understand like the storytelling aspect of everything and where it will punch the hardest. Now, do you ever think to yourself, I'm not going to share this information on, because you're good at this. Um, And I'm sure people are going, Hey, Camille, uh, you know, I need help with this or that or the other thing. Is there an element to the business, to the new business model? Like when I was coming up, it was just like, fuck you. I'm not telling you how I got that gig. <laughs> you know, ah. to some extent there was that because, I mean, this is a long time ago. So it was uh, there was the the small end of the funnel was super small for a comedian. You did the Tonight Show or you didn't get up to the next level. That was it. So I know. So the competitiveness to get there could be a little cutthroat. Now, I, I never thought that way personally. I always 
tried to share just because who cares? I mean, mm-hmm. unless there was another Italian comic almost exactly like me, I probably nobody was taking food off my table. So but nowadays there's so many platforms. It seems like that end of the funnel is wider. It may not be lucrative, but it is wider. You can go to so many places. Is there an element of the business now that's still that cutthroat? Yeah, I do. Um, uh, (laughs) I do think that, but for me, I don't really care because I know that like, I have great stage presence. I have great presence. I have great art. I don't really care like about other people because I know that people can't replicate what I do. I'm special. I do try and help people like, you know, become a little bit more special themselves, but I do find that people start to get more competitive as I, you know, grow and there's nothing that that can be done about it. It's just like more like an ostracization, like as you, um, you don't want to like, you know, change friends or whatever, but as I've noticed, as I've grown, I've had to like, you know, get more and more friends that sort of relate to me rather than or like how do you do that or I can do the same thing as you or if I was you I'd be doing this this and this and this and you're doing it all wrong it's like that's not the energy that should be given and I've like cut out all my friends that don't support my art you know or like you know because it's like competitive like they want to be like you know similar and so it's like they now view you as competition but it's like are you willing to put the hours in? Do you know what it's like to do what I do? It really is a lot of work. But like, and like sometimes like I will like offer advice and people will be like, you know, thinking I might steal their idea or something, you know, because now I have a bigger platform than them. So for me, I just generally keep to myself and make art. Now I used to be way more like open to like collaborating with people and stuff like that. But I just think it's like a different beast now because like I have like a production company. It's just like a different vibe that I'm giving. (laughs) I think now. Now, when you're in a writer's room compared to uh, writing a project for yourself, what, what, what did you like about a room and what did you not like about a room compared? Cause when you're writing for yourself, you're, you essentially have a writer's room. It's just you. But but there's got to be pluses and minuses to either. What did you find? Okay. I like the community of a writer's room. I like talking to other writers. I think it's like somewhat unnatural because like as a writer, you're naturally reclusive. But I do like to just see the other personalities, whatever. It's fun. I love being social. Um, the negative is that um, I'm always on like shows about like women, but like men run it. And so it's like, I'm pitching shit and it's like, you don't know, you don't know anything. Like what's the purpose um, of you being here? I know why I'm here. Why are you here? And, and so um, that's sort of like the vibe I always think of. Cause it's just like um, when I write alone, I feel like I'm able to be authentic to like what women want, how they feel like their motivation and people really love my samples and think they're authentic because of it but um, I think it loses authenticity when it's filtered through men that are old enough to be my father saying how they perceive me and how they perceive young women that are similar to me 